You're listening to Cam's Talk, a podcast brought to you by the service users and professionals from East London NHS Foundation Trust. A podcast where you can hear us discuss, debate and challenge issues around child and adolescent mental health in the UK. everyone and welcome to another episode of CAMS Talk. My name is Ashlyn Callahan, and I am a service user participation worker for Bedfordshire and Newton CAMS. Um, today we'll be discussing the impact of COVID-19 on children and young people's mental health and I am joined by my co-host Ava. So Ava would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone my name is Ava Serene, I'm 17 and I'm with the CAMS service user participation group. Lovely, thank you Ava. Um, and our guest for today's podcast is Professor Tamsin Ford, um, who is Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge and a child psychiatric epidemiologist. Um, so welcome Tamsin to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. No problem. Do you want to explain a little bit about um, your kind of your role and your interest in the topic? Yes, so I trained as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, having left medical school and and gone into general psychiatry training. And I was very lucky to do the latter half of my training at the Bethlehem and Morsley training rotation, where I was suddenly exposed to really high quality research and thought, this, you know, this is fantastic, it's amazing, but I don't see people researching the really important things for me, which is how can we get more and better treatments to young people and their families? And how can we get more people um, better quicker? Um, And so I didn't intend to divert and become a researcher, um, but that's kind of what happened. So at the time, if you said to me I was going to be a professor, I'd have fallen about laughing, as I think would most of my medical school colleagues. but I got more and more interested in research. Um, So I now do very little direct clinical practice. And my major role is is studying um, service organization, service access, and also intervention development um, with a population approach. So I guess with COVID, we've all heard lots about epidemiology. Well, I study the epidemiology of mental health in children and young people, which is a bit different to infectious diseases epidemiology but it's the same principle lovely thanks for explaining all of that Thompson. it's really interesting to hear um, your kind of path and how you've navigated that um, so as i mentioned we're here today to discuss the impact of covid19 on children young people's mental health um, and this is a topic that's in the media a lot at the moment I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought we knew that there would be consequences, but it's taken the research a little while to catch up. Um, so it's all coming out at the moment. So Ava, I know you've um, you've looked into some of the data that's out there. And I'd love to know what you found. Yes, so I found that um, more than two thirds of young people have said that their mental health has gotten worse during lockdown. And during the pandemic, a larger than average share of young people report symptoms of anxiety. And then from ages 13 to 18, there was a sharp spike in some psychological conditions like anxiety disorders, self-harm, substance abuse, uh, OCD, ADHD, and tick disorders. 
That's really interesting. So where, where did you find the data, Ava, that you were looking, you're reporting there? So I found, I went on Google and I went on, um, I Googled COVID-19 and the effect of, um, men, uh, co of COVID on men, young people's mental health. So I went through all these articles and I scanned what research they found. And there were quite a lot of them, weren't there? A lot, yes. <laughs> so it, it's actually quite a mixed and difficult picture. And I suspect that's because the pandemic and the restrictions associated with it are changing over time. And so that means we have to be really careful to think about the date of the study and how similar the people in the study are to our own UK population or to Bedford and um, Luton where you are or to I'm speaking to you from Devon and those are quite different populations so the same things might not hold and in fact there are, I can give you to put in your show notes a, a link to an absolutely amazing systematic review a living systematic review so they're dating it updating it every day being led by um, colleagues at McGill University in Canada now as of Sunday night which was the last time I checked it they had screened over 43 and a half thousand abstracts but they're looking at mental health across the lifespan and they're not they're doing three linked systematic reviews one pre-pandemic um to within the pandemic change um one what factors predict change which they've now stopped because it's harder to define robustly and then one on interventions to try and help people who are struggling um, and they've got about 35 papers out of those 43 and a half thousand that they think are actually good enough to study so I think the first thing is you know as we're constantly being told be careful about your source so if you've probably had them I know my kids have and they've complained about them lots and lots of surveys either by school or social media saying tell us how you feel about your mental health and the questions can seem a bit you know people are making up questionnaires which is a whole study in itself to find out how that how they work um, and although there's huge amounts of studies in adults actually we lack good studies in children so I can tell you about some of the better ones there is one from, well, they say it's international. Actually, it's 20, uh, 10 studies from the United States of America, one from Peru and one from the Netherlands. So it's three countries, which I suppose is international, um, but it's mainly the USA. And it's a collection of studies where um, data was collected from teenagers pre-COVID, some of them go back to about 2015 and 2000 or 2016. Most of them are more recent, but you know, that is quite a long time. Um, so that's a health warning. The other health warning is only half of these studies were carefully collected from the community. The other half were clinically recruited. So it, they relate to clinical populations, not necessarily to everybody um, under the age of 18. What they showed was a significant increase in depression, not anxiety. They only looked at depression and anxiety. Um, and that 
you know, as people get older and some of those studies, there's a four or five year, um, four or five year gap, the um, number of young people who get depressed goes up. So you'd kind of expect that, but they cleverly statistically tested whether this was accounted for by age and it wasn't. And the other thing that kind of hints that it's related to COVID is when they looked at the results by the restrictions on young people where they were living at the time the data was collected, those living under stricter um, restrictions were doing worse which is interesting. Whereas adults um, sort of beyond the age of sort of 25 seem to be more likely to get anxious. Um, and maybe it's because of different life stages and different impacts. Then another really interesting study is um, came from the southwest of England. They went into schools. It's only year nine pupils and it's only people living around Bristol, uh, but 17 schools and about a thousand young people. And they were for other reasons, because in October, 2019, they didn't know the pandemic was going to happen. So they were measuring anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms and well-being, on, you know, robust scales. And they were very good, you know, very quick at going back after the pandemic hit. So they went back in April, May last year and they found no difference overall. But when they split the sample by people who were scoring above cut points on those scales, so in other words, looked like they were struggling. Actually, those young people improved early on in lockdown. So That's I think there is a mix. Yeah, exactly. There's a mixed picture. Certainly the national survey that I've been involved in. So this was a very carefully constructed survey to be representative of the whole population of children and young people in England. And they were aged two to 19 in 2017 when we did really detailed assessments. It was done for government to give them data on which to plan services. So we went back in late June, early July, and got as many of them as we could to fill in questionnaires. And that showed that overall, eight, all age groups, so there were five to 22 by the time we went back, both genders and all ethnic groups, that there had been an increase in the number of people who looked like they have a clinical mental health condition, but we didn't have details about what type. We just, there's a limit to how much you can ask over questionnaires, but those who, again, who were struggling in baseline and those who um, whose families are, you know, worried about food, housing, finances, they're, they're particularly struggling. So that's something I think we really need to think about at a societal level, um, because there are going to be more families under pressure and that is going to have an impact on young people and children and probably also parents too. That's so interesting. Um, and that really matches up with um, the conversations that I've been having with young people. So in my role, I work with um, CAM service users and ex-CAM service users. Um, and some of the young people that we've worked with have um, really struggled, if I'm being honest. Uh, they've really missed the lack of structure. They've lost family members. They've lost friends. Um, 
and all those kind of rites of passages with GCSE exams has been a real struggle missing them. But some young people kind of on the other side, especially those that struggled in education to begin with, really thrived under the first lockdown. Mm. Um, you know, were really self-motivated, loved education, but school wasn't the right environment for them. And um, I worry about them as schools open up. So I think we might see different waves. Um, and I think, you know, it's a real chance for education to rethink itself. Um, and I really hope that it isn't, you know, they just, when schools go back, teachers aren't made to just think about catching up any learning loss, because actually children are not going to snap back. Teachers are not going to just snap back. They haven't had a break either since March last year. So, you know, everyone needs some time to get back into school and to get used to being, you know, to catch up with their friends and to land, because actually you don't learn well when you're stressed. And some young people who perhaps have found it easier doing remote learning are going to have to adjust to being back at school, may even find it difficult to go back to school. And, you know, they are going to need support, not being harangued because teachers are, are worried and under pressure from the Department of Education to get everybody back up to the same standard. It's a trajectory. It's not about filling a vessel it's about lighting a fire and giving people the skills to be able to go out and learn so actually whether you've covered x y and z topics i think is much less important than you've told people you know how to teach themselves given them critical appraisal skills and covered bits that you can in depth and you know yeah i i think we'll be shooting ourselves in the foot if we just only focus on you know increased lessons and working very hard and ticking boxes by covering topics. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and actually, we had some of our service users attend a conference, um, which was kind of the participants included commissioners, uh, people from the NHS, people, government officials involved in education, um, a real wide range of people, everyone involved in education. Um, and we bought service users feedback um, just to kind of learn what's what's right at the moment what's going well with education in lockdown and what's not going so well and so one of their key pieces of feedback was when schools reopened in September um, there there wasn't that it they said it seems like a missed opportunity to be having conversations about well-being and checking in because the focus was entirely on trying to catch up with the education side. Mm. Um, and there was, there was another kind of conversation about those that opened up to teachers that were struggling with their mental health. Um, you know, that's a whole other conversation, how, you know, teachers are a massive part of young people's lives. And there, I know in CAMS, we get loads of referrals from teachers that have conversations with young people who know them really well and that the young people are comfortable speaking to. Um, and a lot of them went back to school and restarted education in September and October, um, had conversations with teachers that, you know, to the young person, it was a massive deal opening up about their well-being to someone and not knowing what response they'd get. Um, I know quite a lot of them got the response that I am not mental health trained, so you need to be having this conversation with another person in the school, um, 
which was quite a blow to them because mm. they thought, I don't know this other person I've come to you I've done what I was told mm. to speak to an adult about my well-being um, so I'd love to know Townsend what you think education providers and schools could do when young people enter education I mean next week and over the coming weeks to support them in their well-being that's a really good and also really important question and I think you know, I think there are lots of things. So the whole school things, and one of the things that might be protective a little bit, even for those who are struggling, is actually this is a shared experience. So all of us have faced restrictions. Now, some people obviously will have had it much worse than others in terms of bereavement or, you know, it's big, living in a very big family in a small flat without much access to outside space is obviously very different than living in a large house with a large garden so you know I'm not saying everyone's experience is the same but we've all been through it and I think work from previous epidemics where that's not been the case the people who've had to quarantine or haven't been able to go to school have felt very stigmatized so hopefully that's one thing we don't have to deal with but there is a sort of whole school approach with assemblies and um you know, whole school strategies weaving into PHSE lessons, you know, it's okay to be not okay. Um, and all distress isn't a mental health problem. Um, you know, in a way, a little bit of stress actually helps you perform. So if you plot pressure or stress against people's performance on activities in a laboratory. Actually, as the pressure goes up, they do better for quite a long while. So having no stress whatsoever is, is a bad thing. It's just, it gets to the point where it's overwhelming and your performance drops off. And obviously that you can't live at sort of maximum pressure all the time, but you know, there's been a lot to feel distressed about. People have struggled to, to keep in contact with their friends, they've felt lonely, they've had no structure. So maybe it's difficult to sleep or keep into a everyday rhythm. So actually sort of having some class discussion, true to group discussions, things in PSHE about it's okay not to be okay and how to try and look after yourself. You know, the importance of having some kind of a routine as far as you can, the importance of eating reasonably well and regularly, the importance of planning in things that you like doing, however hard you're working. Certainly one thing I used to do and I see a lot with students is it, com it comes up to exams and you cancel everything that you, know, you enjoy doing because you feel like I've got to work, I've got to work. And there's nothing more likely to make you feel very stressed and miserable. So actually, you know, make sure that you allow yourself some fun as well, because it's about keeping yourself well. Um, we can also teach people about problem solving and conflict resolution. You know, these are skills that are coachable and teachable. So you can have formal teaching in, in PHSE lessons, but actually they're coachable skills that um, those with pastoral care or, or, you know, heads of year tutors, you know, can be modeling and developing and helping people with the problems that everyday life will throw up. I think I can see where teachers are coming from saying I'm not mental health trained and it's partly their own anxiety and I think we've known for quite some time in fact it was my PhD um, which I completed in 2004 which is probably before 
maybe before um, you were born or around about the time Ava was born, um, you know, which, which demonstrated that teachers are our frontline mental health service. So the fact that they are not trained in relation to mental health, or at least that very kind of, you know, immediate dealing with some distress is I think really doing them a disservice and also the pupils a disservice. But actually, and it comes from a place of really having spoken to lots of teachers about this, of really wanting to do the right thing and being terribly afraid that they'll get it wrong and they'll make matters worse. But actually, all you have to do is listen. And yes, you know, if you think that somebody needs more than just listening, that it's a more, you know, more thing with life. Well, then's the time to say, well, you know, I think you might need a bit more help than I can give you. Let's go and see the counsellor or let's go and see if so-and-so can offer you some support and bridging that gap so it doesn't feel like a knockback. And, you know, teachers aren't psychotherapists and, or counsellors. They shouldn't be trying to do that work. They're quite right. But there are ways of supporting the young person towards where they should go that are gentle and supportive and positive, um, even if they don't particularly feel like it at, at the time. Because I totally get the fact that people choose who they speak to because it's someone they trust and they can be a bit reluctant to then speak to a, a stranger, but it is important to go and see the, the right person. The teacher can be a bridge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, one one key thing that's coming to my mind is consistency um because mm -hmm. i'm i'm hearing you know the feedback that i said from young people but also i work really closely with a teacher who's asked me to put together some resources exactly like you were describing um oh, we've recorded a video with young people talking about the things that they do on a regular basis or day to day um, to look after their mental health and that they treat it in the same way as they do their physical health. So they know that they need to move their body and, you know, eat, eat right in order to look after their physical health. And they know that they need to find some ways of looking after their mental health as well. Um, which, you know, having heard what you've just said is, is a fantastic resource for the teacher to be providing. Um, and perhaps there's something around equipping teachers with the confidence to share that information um, and have those conversations and feeling confident to engage in conversation and listening to young people. Mm. Yeah. Listening, you know, the, the old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. Actually, you know, people can actually physically, you can almost see their shoulders come up. So, you know, sometimes if it, you know, someone's feeling really under pressure, they just need to vent and they need someone to sit there with them and say, yeah, that's really tough, it sucks, I can see that. And you don't need to necessarily have any training in order to be highly effective at doing that. And whilst you're doing that, you can be thinking, well, you know, how long has this gone on for? Is it getting in the way of the young person doing what they need to and want to do on an everyday basis? And those are the kind of things you need to know to make a decision about, well, should I be having a word with the young person to encourage them to go to a school counsellor? Or is this someone who has had an absolute belly full of an awful situation and just needs to kind of 
you know, get it off their chest and then shall we just see how they go for a day or two after that. And that, you know, nine times out of 10, that, that will be all that's needed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, I'm just thinking about the support networks that young people have at the moment. Obviously, they've shrunk considerably. Um, so, you know, we think about teachers that might they might have been seeing every day that they, they won't have seen for a long time now. Um, and the other kind of obvious place would be friends and family. Mm -hmm. um, I know from my conversations with young people that sharing their mental well-being with their family, particularly if it's if it's not fantastic, has become a lot more of a struggle for them because as well as the um, concern about family feeling responsible for their mental health, there's the additional concern of once they share that information, um, there's no leaving those four walls um, <laughs> for some time afterwards. Um, and I know that that's a barrier for young people who are struggling. And, you know, listening to the statistics that yourself and Ava have mentioned, there's, that it sounds like a slight indication that depression is something that more and more young people might be having experiences of. Um, and I was wondering, uh, on the topic of uh, problem shared is a problem halved, what advice you might have for young people to um, have that confidence, to have those conversations with the people in their lives and access the support that not only their friends and family might give them, but the confidence that might give them to seek more professional support if that's what's needed. Because obviously conversations about mental health, as much as we like to say um, and publicize, you know, ask people how they're doing, ask again, all of those kinds of things, um, you know, in day-to-day -day life, it doesn't happen to me very much, but people really, really ask how I'm doing as, a, as someone that works in mental health. So what advice might you have for young people that um, have got something that they really want to share but are just struggling with it at this at the moment? Well, I think, you know, you don't necessarily have to talk to your family. And I agree, I think lots of young people are really worried about burdening their family or they can see that their, their parents or other members of the, their family are also really struggling. Um, I think that there are lots of good sources of help. Um, so Young Minds has some resources about how you can help yourself or where you can go to get help. Um, there are often local charities, so there's, for example, one in the east of England called, I think it's Chapter 33, um, where they do lots of um, work with young people and you can just refer yourself. Um, going to see the family doctor might be an option for some if, if the family doctor is... Um, you know, is, is someone that you know and trust that even if it, it isn't, you know, that they see a lot of young people and adults who are struggling, they won't be surprised and they won't be shocked. Um, and I think you would be surprised once you talk about mental health conditions and struggling just how common it is. So I would think you know, the, the follow-up study suggests that 
well over half of us by middle age will have had a mental health condition at some point. So it's really not as uncommon as people think. Um, and it's because we don't talk about it. And I think that's slowly, slowly going away. So I was listening to a podcast at lunchtime from the BMJ where they were talking about precisely this issues with doctors. And there was a very um, cogent um, woman who is an intensive care doctor, but she lost her father through a condition that it wasn't COVID, but he couldn't breathe. And when COVID hit, she's you know just realized very quickly i cannot right at this moment work in intensive care helping people who are struggling to breathe because i've just had to deal with that um in a way that she described was the, the best and hardest thing she'd ever done and she was brave enough to say i need some time i just cannot do this she sounded like she was really very poorly with her mental health for a few weeks but actually because she stopped, because she sought help and got treatment, you know, now she is back all guns blaring and coping well. She, you know, did the right thing by taking time. But it's amazing how, you know, doctors and nurses and health practitioners are also not very good at reaching out and saying, actually, I need some help. So I would encourage people to speak to people, but it doesn't have to be within your family. And it doesn't have to be within your friend group. And sometimes it's easier to go and talk to a trained professional who has that emotional distance. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of very good people around and there's a lot of really good information about what you can do to help yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know we'll include links to all of the, the charities and organisations and websites that we mentioned in this podcast. Um, along with the recording so I would definitely encourage anyone that's listening and perhaps might be struggling or maybe just interested in what is on offer to check them out uh, thank you so much for joining us today Townsend um, it's been really interesting and really insightful um, hearing what you've got to say about these topics um, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear this one um, and thank you everyone for listening You've been listening to CAMS Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Luton and Bedford CAMS team and the Luton and Bedford Service User Participation Group. If you'd like to hear more from us, just go over to camstalk.com and subscribe. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or any of the other platforms that you're using. Once you've subscribed, you'll get notification on your device every time we release a new episode. If you want to comment or share your views, you can contact us on Twitter using at camstalk or you can send us an email using info at camstalk.com. One last thing before we go. Don't forget to use the hashtag camstalkpodcast whenever you comment on social media. We'll speak to you soon. Hold up. 